Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Hey man, you guys to take a seat. You doing good this morning? You're looking good. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today as we continue our Reassembly Required series where we've been talking about how to take the first steps toward healing in some of the most important relationships in our lives. And this morning, we're going to talk about an arena where a whole lot of us spend a pretty significant number of our waking hours, work, or if you're a student, school. It's a pretty important and big time or a big section of our lives, which means it comes along with some interpersonal conflict inevitably, right? And especially that's true because we live in the middle of a society that tends to define us by our work. And for some of you, that might be really fun in social circles to be defined by what you do. Like people ask what your job is and you tell them and they say, wow. Like if you tell people you're an engineer or a teacher or a stay-at-home mom, they say, oh, that's cool. But for me, it just creates real awkward social situations. You tell someone you're a pastor and they tell you like, I made it to church on Easter and I am trying not to say as much swears and stuff. A few years ago, I was on a flight to Seattle, and I ended up sitting next to this older couple, and she was an extreme extrovert. So we started talking, and before the plane had even taken off, she managed to tell me, oh my goodness, on our last flight before this layover, I got stuck sitting next to a pastor. And he kept trying to tell me about Jesus the whole time and asking like, if I knew where I was going to spend eternity if I died. He gave me this booklet. It was so weird. So I went ahead and did not lead with what I do for a living. And we talked for a while about why we're going to Seattle and all that. And eventually she was like, oh, wow, I forgot to ask what you do. I said, I'm a pastor. (laughs) And in that moment, if her face was an emoji, it would have been this emoji. She just looked at me. She's like, you're not really. And I said, oh, I, I am really. And then she told me that she went to church on Easter and she's trying to say less swears. She's a nice person because... That's what you do when you meet a pastor, I I guess. And then she asked me, what kind of a pastor are you? I didn't know exactly what she meant by that. So I said, a boring one and mean. I just yell at everyone a lot. And thankfully, that broke the tension that she was feeling just enough that we were able to have a conversation. But the whole thing was like a powerful reminder for me that your work, no matter what you do, no matter whether you even like what you do, is a lens through which people see you and judge you, and it's a significant part of your life. In fact, the average American will spend 90,000 hours at work over the course of their lifetimes. That's like over 3,700 full 24-hour days. And I don't know if any of you guys have ever met people before. But if you have, you probably already know this is true. If you spend 90,000 hours with people, some conflict is going to pop up. You're going to end up with relationships that are broken that require a little bit of reassembly. And that's powerfully true and especially relevant when it comes to the relationship between employees and employers. And I've been on both sides of that table. I spent most of my life as an employee and I had a whole lot of different jobs where I was pretty sure my bosses had no idea what they were doing. Like one summer in college, I spent as a telemarketer and we were 
marketing, just maybe the worst product in the history of mankind, but we had these bosses that would walk out of their office occasionally and yell at us that we weren't making enough sales and we weren't getting enough calls in. And I couldn't help but think, maybe, just maybe, if we need more sales, you should get out of your office and hop on a phone. Because it looks like you're doing nothing in there all day, and if this is as easy as you say it is, then come show me how easy it'll be. And I have this whole string of terrible jobs, so I was really excited after I finished grad school to get into vocational ministry and start getting paid to be a Christian. I was being a Christian anyway, so it seemed like a sweet gig. And I just believed that it's the church, so it's going to be perfect, and my bosses are going to be impeccable people, and we're all doing it for Jesus, and there's going to be no conflict whatsoever. But it turns out in a shocking twist of fate, pastors are humans too. And sometimes they can be frustrating to work for. And to be clear, I'm super grateful for where I landed. I have a whole bunch of friends in ministry who started out in really deeply unhealthy churches. And that wasn't the case for me. It was a great church with great leaders, but even great leaders aren't perfect leaders. And I got frustrated, especially when I felt like we weren't valuing the stuff we kept saying was our core values. It made me want to yank my hair out. And I did, and that's the whole reason for all of this. But I know this from all my time spent as an employee. Being an employee is difficult because employers can be a real pain in the neck sometimes. Does anybody in here at all relate to that sentiment? Have you ever thought that? All right, yeah. Well, I thought that, and then I became a boss, and I ended up on the other end of the table, and it was kind of difficult because I realized that all of my employees weren't like me when I was an employee. They weren't perfect. And like here I was being a perfect employee my whole life, and then I had people working for me, and they weren't as perfect as me, and that was, that was a difficult season in my life to come to that realization. And just to be clear for the sake of our staff, I'm kidding about that. That's not... That's not true, and I don't believe it, and I'm deeply grateful for the revision staff. Again, I have a whole lot of friends in ministry who haven't been nearly as lucky as I have in that department, but even with a staff that I appreciate and love, I know that at work, sometimes there's conflict and frustration between people, and that's because no matter what you do and no matter what your role is in any company or organization, you sometimes get it wrong. I sometimes get it wrong. All of us sometimes get it wrong. And that causes cracks in our relationships. That's inevitable. There's no way around it. But the good news is there is a way forward toward healing in the relationships that are broken that actually builds a strong foundation for them moving forward. And it's the surprising secret to every relationship ever. We've been talking about it for three weeks now. So if you've been here, you're probably waiting for me to say it. If you haven't, let me catch you up real quick. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 21, Paul gives us this really simple principle that's like relationship repair 101. It's not everything we need to do to reconnect connections that have been broken, but it's the first thing we need to do. It's the initial step we need to take. He writes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul's going, because you love Jesus and because you know that living like Jesus is the way you can be most fully alive, you should leverage your life for the sake of the people around you just like Jesus did for you. You should put their needs above your own. You should treat life like it's a submission competition. And he gives us a picture of what that looks like in our marriages and in our families and in our workplaces because Paul desperately wants us to know that following Jesus has implications for every single space we occupy. 
Being a Jesus follower isn't just a Sunday morning thing and a one night a week at house groups type of a thing. It's a whole life thing that changes the way we live and move and breathe. And that has a whole lot of implications for the way that we work. And in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about that. So if you have a Bible or a Bible handy this morning, you can crack it open to Ephesians 6. It's way toward the back, sandwiched between Galatians and Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. You can follow along with the words on the screen or in the Revision app. And if you need a Bible or your kids do, we have them in a bunch of different colors for a bunch of different ages back at that Next Steps table. Please take one before you leave today. They're our gift to you. But Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, this is what Paul says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do. Whatever they, whether they're slave or free and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he was both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Okay, let's pump the brakes real quick. My guess is for a whole lot of you that raised some alarm bells. You want slaves and masters and the Bible talking about being an obedient slave. I thought you said you were talking about employees and employers today, Mike, and this is not that, and also it feels a little disturbing. And you're right, it, it does. These words are unsettling to us because of the history of our nation, and they absolutely should be. But the Greek concept of, of slavery, and I put that in air quotes because I'm not sure it's the most helpful translation for us, looks absolutely nothing like the racially based system of chattel slavery in the New World. Slavery in the Americas in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries was sinful and shameful. And not only was it wrong and gross and painful back then, but it also left us with a legacy of racism, prejudice, division, and inequality that still haunts us today. And as followers of Jesus, it's imperative that we not only stand against it, but that we actively pursue healing in the places that are still broken in our society. The scars that are still seared onto our collective conscious because of centuries and centuries of oppression and injustice. But here's the deal. When Paul's writing about this, that whole system would have been completely foreign to him. That's not what he's picturing at, at all when he writes about slaves and masters. Like in, in the city of Ephesus to which he's writing, in, in the Greek world and even in the Hebrew world, in both the old and the New Testaments, slavery looked nothing like slavery, to, or like slavery did in, in the system of, of chattel slavery. In fact, the most accurate correlation we could get to what Paul's talking about is employees. And it's not a one-to-one -one thing, but it's in the same ballpark. And let me explain. In the ancient world, nobody worked for companies or corporations. Like There, there wasn't a bunch of people working for Wells Fargo or, or Nationwide or high V or whatever, those didn't exist. People worked for families. You either worked for your own family or somebody else's family. And if you worked for somebody else's family, you basically got dropped into one of two buckets, day laborers or contract laborers. And there were people who went out to the town square every single day to try to find one day's work for one day's wages. It was an incredibly unstable form of subsistence labor. But there were other people who were contractually obligated to serve a certain family for a certain amount of time. 
and their lives weren't owned, their families weren't owned, their property wasn't owned, and their free time wasn't owned by that family. Just their labor was. They had to work for that family for a period of years, or if they chose to, for their entire lives. And in return, they received food, clothing, money, time off, and legal rights. The Bible is actually clear about this in multiple cases, that if someone was going to be your doulos, which is the word we translate slave, you had to compensate them so they could live. So there's this whole category of people in Bible times that worked for someone else and in return were provided with everything they needed, not just to survive, but to thrive. And in the modern world, I don't think we have to scratch our heads too much to come up with a term for somebody who works for someone else or some other group of people in return for what they need to survive and thrive. We'd call that an employee. And again, it's not a perfect correlation. We have more freedom to switch jobs than they did back then, but that is functionally the relationship that Paul is talking about. And that's what he means when he uses these words. And in this little section, he gives us four simple ways employees can treat their employers. Employees can be spirit-filled people living out God's call and vision for their lives in their work. Respect, obedience, loyalty, and enthusiasm. That's the role of an employee in God's economy. I know that's super corny that I did that for the second straight week in a row. You guys can make fun of me later, but I love a good acronym. And also, I want to dig into what Paul's talking about because I think it's helpful. He kicks it off with these Greek idiomatic phrases. He's like, obey your masters with fear and trembling and with the sincerity of your heart. And what those mean are like obey them with fear or with loyalty and respect the same way that you'd obey Jesus. Paul's saying, treat your boss with loyalty and respect. Super easy to do, right? No, it's not easy to do at all. Like, it's incredibly difficult to do. Unless you're Jeremy, Courtney, Jeff, John, and Alyssa, unless you're the Revision Church staff, you might not have a boss that deserves to be treated like that 100% of the time. Lucky them, right? But for the rest of us, I know some of you are thinking, Mike, you can't be serious. If you knew how messed up my company was, if you knew what my boss is like, you wouldn't be telling me that I got to like respect that person. I couldn't fake respect for my boss if I tried in loyalty. I go to work every day under this heavy cloud of like layoffs that I could be let go at any moment in time. My company's not loyal to me. How should I be loyal to my company? There's a couple things we got to understand. Respect and loyalty are actions, not emotions. Paul's not talking about the way we feel here. He's talking about the way we work and the way we treat the people we work for. Respect and loyalty are things that we give to our employer, not things that we feel for our employer. And we can give those things even when they aren't returned. We can treat someone with respect who isn't respectable. And we can show loyalty by doing the task we've been given to the best of our ability, even while we're looking for another job on the side. We can treat people with respect and loyalty even when they treat us with neither. Second thing, our motivation is the respect and loyalty we have for Jesus, not our employer. And that's the foundation of all of this. The whole surprising secret to every relationship, everything where we like leverage ourselves for the sake of other people, the foundation is the way Jesus treated us. It's the golden rule on steroids, right? The golden rule is we treat others the way we want them to treat us. But Jesus looked at his followers and he's like, nah, I'm getting rid of that. I want you to treat other people the way I treated you. 
And that's an entirely different level, but we can do it even for horrible bosses and bad corporations because Jesus treated us with a love, respect, loyalty, and faithfulness that we did absolutely nothing to earn. So God's not asking us to do this because our bosses are great or even because we love the work that we do or the business we're working for. He's asking us to do it because that's who he created us to be. And as we do it to the best of our ability, as we show respect and loyalty, we actually live into our created purpose and make a bigger difference in the lives of the people we're working for. I think all of us, no matter what our work situation may be, whether we like it or don't, can wrap our minds around that. But what about the part where Paul says a doulas has to obey the person over them? Like, obedience feels like a step up from showing respect and loyalty. And check it out, this one's tricky. But thankfully, I went to Bible school to study this stuff. I got my graduate degree. I have many leather-bound books, and my office smells of rich mahogany or particle board. I can't tell the difference. But either way, I know just enough Greek to be able to tell you that the word that's translated obey here means obey. Yeah, it means do what they ask you to do. Unfortunately, that's kind of the long and the short of it here. And it's tricky to do, not to understand. Paul's saying, hey, you need to do the work that you're getting paid to do to the best of your ability. And I know that it's tempting as a human being to kind of put in the minimum necessary to get by, to just coast. And prophetically speaking, I know there's a guy named George Costanza who's going to come along one day and invent an entire system for looking busy while you're actually doing nothing. But Paul's going, you guys, I think following Jesus means you're supposed to be a better employee than George Costanza. It means you're supposed to make the most of your minutes, not the minimum of your minutes, even when your boss isn't present. It's like if you're only working hard, if you're only putting in the best of yourself when your boss is present or paying attention, you have a heart problem. This is what Paul writes in verses six and seven. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do. So Paul's like, look, there's a blessing that comes along with this. There's this natural blessing that flows from doing good work and honoring the people in authority over you, but our motivation cannot be career advancement. It has to be worship. Because the thing is, if you're only working when your boss is looking, if you're only doing this to be manipulative, then you've actually flipped the entire concept on its head. This whole thing Paul's been talking about, where we're meant to spend ourselves and our energy in order to bless the people around us, isn't what you're doing if you're only working hard when someone's watching. You're actually using them to prop yourself up. You're spending their time and their energy and their money to get yourself ahead and you're missing it because meaning is found and purpose is found and life is found in doing it like Jesus did it and getting yourself up underneath their burdens. And so Paul says, do this out of respect for Jesus. Do it because it's what Jesus did for you. Do it because God says that's who he made you to be. That's what Paul's trying to see when he says we should serve or help us see when he says we should serve wholeheartedly. That's, that's the E in role. Do it with enthusiasm. 
even if you don't like the work you're doing. A lot of us love the work we're doing. Some of us hate the work we're doing, and, and most of us are probably somewhere in between. But Paul says, whether you like it or love it or anywhere in between, do the work that you got paid to do. Do what you got asked to do as a way of honoring God as an act of worship. I know that may sound like a weird thing to say because we don't often connect work and worship in our minds. We think of worship as this thing we do when we come on Sunday mornings and we stand and sing for a little bit. And work is this nine to five grind that we engage in 40 plus hours a week. But you guys, in the Bible, work and worship are intimately connected. In fact, they have the same root word. It's this Hebrew word avodah. It has the connotation of being heavy, like we bend to work, we bend to worship, we bend to serve. And that same exact root is used to describe like multiple different concepts. In Exodus 34, 21, God says, six days you shall labor, and on the seventh day you'll rest. In Exodus 8, 1, God says, hey, Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go because they need to worship me. There's this intimate biblical connection between work and and worship. And it's critical for all of us to understand that because we live in the middle of a culture that will constantly tempt us to pervert our idea of work. We get told either that work is evil and punishment and it sucks the life right out of us, or that work is life. And either way, whether we treat work like something we never want to do or we treat work like who we are, we end up in the same spot. We end up with this messed up view of what our work is and what our work means and why we work at all. And that leads us down a path to hating our work and causing friction with the people around us, to hurting the people we work with, the people we work for, and the people who work for us. And we miss out because this is a space where life isn't meant to be sucked out of us. It's meant to be poured into us. And it's meant also to give us an opportunity to pour life into other people. That's what God created work for. In the very beginning, the first time we ever see the word avadah show up in the Bible is Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and he placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And this is talking about Adam's created purpose. This is before sin entered into the equation. God set Adam in the garden to do work, not as a curse, not like, oh man, you messed it up and you blew it, now you have to work. And he didn't say that this is who Adam was either. He didn't say God created a worker and named him Adam. It says God created Adam and he put him in the garden to work it. He invited Adam to be a co-creator. He made him a gardener, not a park ranger. He wasn't supposed to protect it. He was supposed to cultivate it. Like the whole idea God has in Genesis 2 is that Adam is going to take the raw materials that God had and make them into something more and something better. Like sometimes we get this twisted concept that the world was complete and perfect before sin entered into the equation, and then sin just totally ruined that. And make no mistake, sin jacked up everything about the human condition, about human relationships, and about the world we live in. But God didn't look at the world and call it perfect. He called it good. And then he placed Adam in the garden and said, hey, here, shape the future. Take the raw materials and make them more, make them better in a way that glorifies me and adds value to the people around you. Take the raw materials and make them great. And here's a way I think we can wrap our minds around this concept. My wife, if you see her today, she doesn't look like she had to like get four kids awake and fed and dressed and and to church this morning with her hair and makeup. The whole look is perfect. It cannot be improved upon. But this morning when I left and she was zonked out in bed, it was good. 
the raw materials were there, but you know, like this is the whole concept. God's like, hey, take the raw materials and make them better. And this is what happens when contractors take raw materials and they make buildings, when lawyers take raw materials and they make law, when students take raw materials and they learn new concepts, when musicians take raw materials and they make music, when moms take poopy, screamy, angry raw materials and make functional humans out of them. This is work. It's taking raw materials and making the world a better place for everybody around you. And we understand that our work is an opportunity to worship. It shifts the game for us. And I think too many of us have this concept given us from the church that the only way we can be Christian in our jobs is to invite our coworkers to come to church with us. And don't get me wrong, I would love it if you guys did that more often. If we had the guts to do it, study after study after study shows, it would go better than you think and it might just rewrite eternity for people. But it would be tragic if you thought that's the only way you can follow Jesus at work. I want all of you to know that your work is holy. That the work you're doing, like the doing of your job itself is an act of worship because it's what God created you to do. Because it adds value to people and brings flourishing to the world. And that is part of who God made you to be when he created you in his image. God works. So what Paul's inviting us to do here is live these lives of worship to God in every space that we occupy and to do the best we can with the tasks God's put in front of us because it makes the world a better place for everybody else. Because it is a way of living out this whole vision he's been talking about, of submitting your life to the people around you. When you do a good job at your job, you're spending yourself to bless everybody else to add value to the world. And Paul wants us to see that. And he says, hey man, when you understand it like that, when you see what God is about and what work is about, then no matter what job you have, you can do it enthusiastically. Again, not because you necessarily love what you're doing or who you're doing it for, but because you love Jesus and you know that it honors him. You guys, I think when we do that, what we begin to see is that the, the fractures and cracks in our work relationships are reassembled. We begin to build a foundation that allows us to be more fully alive in the place where we spend a whole bunch of our weeks. And we also find that we're able to make a bigger impact in those places than we possibly could if we just settled for the discomfort of relational tension. And that's the big idea here. And employers... If you're a CEO, if you're a boss here and you have employees, you might have thought, I forgot about you. I did not. Paul, in this section, again, moves from the weaker person in the relationship to the stronger person in the relationship societally, to the person without power or from the person without power to the person with power. He's gone from wives to husbands in a patriarchal society. He's gone from kids to parents in a society that treated kids like they weren't even people. And now he moves from employees to employers. He says, hey, I know that you have authority over your employees, but there is only one way to use authority in God's economy, submission. You have the authority that you have because it's been given to you by God in order that you might get up underneath the burdens of the people who work for you and use your life to bless them. And that's basically been his formula. He's pretty explicit about it in in verse nine. He says, look, just, just like I told them, that they need to submit to you with respect, obedience, loyalty, and enthusiasm. You gotta do that same thing. He says, masters, treat your doulas in this exact same way. 
Just like I told husbands that they got to do the whole submission thing for their wives. And parents, they got to do the whole submission thing for their kids. Employers, you got to do the whole submission thing for your employees, except you actually got to go one step further. Do that and, and do not threaten them since you know that he was both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. This is kind of crazy, but modern business theory is finally catching up to the idea that Paul nailed it in Ephesians 6, that carrots work better than sticks, that the constant threat of layoffs and, and being fired doesn't help people work better, but that knowing you're cared for in a really healthy culture where your job isn't constantly under threat results in better production and better corporate output every single time. You can read Jim Collins, Patrick Lencioni, Simon Sinek, and more. They're all beating this drum. Do not threaten them. Do not threaten them. Do not threaten them. Why? Because human beings are made to be treated with dignity. And human beings flourish when they're treated with dignity. And so Paul says, hey, bosses, employers, treat people with dignity. Don't treat the people you work with or the people who work for you like they are less than you. Zoom out a little bit and remember that in God's eyes, you are equal. You're equally created in his image, equally unworthy of his love because of your sin, but equally loved. If you treat people like that, it will absolutely change the game in your relationships. And so that's the whole big idea of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That we're meant, that we're built, that we're fully alive when we give our lives away for the sake of the people around us. And so my simple challenge to all of you in here this morning is is this, no matter what your role may be, whether you're an entry-level employee, a middle manager, a CEO student, or stay-at-home mom, figure out how you're going to live into your role this week. Decide, not for any other reason than a deep love of Jesus and an acknowledgement of what he did for you and how he loves you. Decide that you're going to do the best you can do with the work that's in front of you. And you're going to treat the people around you with respect, obedience, loyalty, and enthusiasm. Because I think if we don't, if we just keep on going the way of our world, if we just keep on doing it how we want to do it, we keep on looking out for number one every single time, we will miss out. And we'll settle for less life in the 90,000 hours worth of moments when we're at work. But if we do this, we'll find that broken relationships are healed, a stronger foundation is built moving forward, and we have the opportunity both to be filled up by the work we're doing and to pour out the love of God on the people we're doing it with. And I think that's worth doing. Will you guys pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for work. Thank you for the way in which you make us more that we could ever be on our own. Thank you for inviting us into this purpose of co-creating, of creating the future, of taking the raw materials of the world we've been given and making them even more beautiful in a way that adds value to people and brings flourishing to the world. Lord, help us see this week that our work is worship, that our work is holy, that our work is good, and help us treat the people around us, no matter how difficult they are, no matter how frustrating they might be at times. Help us treat the people around us with respect, obedience, loyalty, and enthusiasm. Help us to do the best that we can do so that we can make a bigger impact in the places you have us and so that we can pour out your love all over the people around us in a way that draws them to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.